1969 marked the end of a decade lost in conflict and chaos. Astronauts were landing spacecraft on the moon while soldiers were fighting and dying in the jungles of Vietnam. Anti-war protests swept across America as the counterculture movement became a powerful force on the political stage, and the so-called hippies of the flower power generation rebelled against a society unprepared for radical change. The now legendary music festival in Woodstock, New York, symbolized the message of peace and love. But on the other side of the country, the citizens of California entered a new age of terror. In the Northern Bay Area, an anonymous killer murdered three people in two attacks. He then called police to report his crimes and sent letters to local newspapers, along with a coded message, which began with the words, I like killing people because it is so much fun. In the first week of August, the killer mailed another letter, which began with the phrase, This is the Zodiac speaking. Days later, Hundreds of miles away in Southern California, another horror story began in the Hollywood Hills. Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel were all members of a cult-like group known as The Family, led by an ex-convict named Charles Manson. Some family members believed that Manson was actually Jesus Christ and they eagerly obeyed when he ordered them to kill innocent human beings as part of a scheme to create a race war. Watson, Atkins, Kasabian, and Krenwinkel arrived at 10050 Cielo Drive, the home of actress Sharon Tate and her husband, film director Roman Polanski. The killers first encountered 19-year-old Stephen Parent, as he was attempting to leave the property after spending some time with the groundskeeper. Tex Watson shot Parent four times, and then the group went into the house to search for more victims. Inside, they found Sharon Tate, eight months pregnant, and her friends, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, and writer Wojtek Frykowski. In a matter of minutes, all four victims were dead. They had been beaten, shot, and stabbed dozens of times. Susan Atkins dipped a towel in Sharon Tate's blood and then wrote the word pig on the front door. The next night, the group set out to kill again. This time, Watson and Krenwinkel were joined by Leslie Van Houten. They arrived at the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca and brutally murdered the couple. Once again, the killers left messages written in blood, including the phrase, Death to Pigs, and the misspelled title of a popular song by the Beatles, Helter Skelter. Manson claimed that the band was sending him messages in their song lyrics so he could prepare to become a leader in the aftermath of the coming Armageddon. The gruesome murders created panic and fear. After months of speculation and sensational news stories, police announced that they had identified the killers. The handwritten messages left at the crime scenes were similar to the Zodiac's message found on the door of a victim's car, and investigators examined the possibility that the two cases were somehow connected. 
San Francisco police checked on male members of the Manson family and dismissed them as suspects. Manson and other family members made headlines across the world when they turned the subsequent trial into a spectacle of threats, tantrums, and other bizarre behavior. All of the defendants were sentenced to death, but their lives were spared when the Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment was unconstitutional. Manson and the other family members were then sentenced to life in prison, giving them the chance for future parole and release. Charles Manson and his murderous family sat in prison as pop culture transformed them into true crime celebrities. But the Zodiac case was never solved, and the killer remained at large. Various theories claimed Manson was involved in other infamous crimes, including the Son of Sam shootings in New York and the Zodiac murders. According to one popular myth, Manson prosecutors discovered evidence proving that the Manson family was responsible for the Zodiac killings, but authorities conspired to conceal the shocking connection. Fifty years later, books, documentaries, and movies about the Manson and Zodiac stories continue to fascinate and haunt the public imagination, and the nightmare in the summer of 1969 is retold as Hollywood Horror. I think after all these years you and I have been talking about Manson and the Zodiac and other cases, it seems to me that the objective has to do with understanding evil. This is the Zodiac speaking. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. This guy is a pathological, uh, psycho uh, killer. I don't know of any evidence at all that Manson was connected with Zodiac. You can't trick me. I didn't have nothing to do with killing those people. Period. Zodiac said he shall never be caught. This is Zodiac A to Z. Growing up in the 1970s and 80s with an interest in true crime stories meant that some people might think you were a little strange. The new age of modern serial killers and mass murderers generated a seemingly endless supply of terrifying new crimes and killers who defied explanation. Each new baffling tragedy spawned a stream of new questions about the nature of human evil. Today, True crime stories serve as a source of popular entertainment, but decades ago, those struggling to understand this dark side of society often faced the negative judgments of others who viewed an interest in the subject matter as evidence of a morbid mind and an obsession with death. Trying to understand the minds and motives of murderers was often a lonely pursuit, but if you were lucky, you might find a partner in crime. My name is David Ike. 
I'm a writer-producer working in L.A. and currently working on a couple of pilot scripts and about to make a deal to write something really weird with the Conan O'Brien Company. I started working in television for a production company. I launched a TV company for the film director, Sam Raimi, who's most well-known for the Evil Dead movies and the first three Spider-Men launched a TV company for him and went on to produce a number of uh, different shows through the 90s and the last 20 years, I guess it's been a long time now, almost 30 years. Hercules, Xena, Battlestar Galactica, a show for ABC Freeform called Beyond, which just wrapped a couple of seasons. And at the moment I'm working on pilots, having a great time mostly in what they call the genre, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, action adventure, high concepts, that kind of thing. There are a number of other shows that uh, I worked on that aren't as well known, but I still had a lot of fun doing them. One in particular was for CBS called American Gothic. It was in 95 with Gary Cole, not to be confused with a more recent show called American Gothic, much to my annoyance. I got to work with a former teen idol, now a very established TV writer producer named Sean Cassidy, who's now one of my best friends and had a blast working on that show in North Carolina. And also Steven Spielberg's show called Falling Skies for TNT, which was a blast just because of the Spielberg factor. And really have had, uh, I think, tremendous good fortune, worked with a lot of terrific people, spent some time as an executive for the USA Network, where I ran series development for USA and Sci-Fi Channel. But my true love is really being, you know, behind a screen typing a script or on a set making a show or in a cutting room or on a dub stage working with sound. <laughs> but the thing I'm most focused on now is writing, um, to get, trying to get the next thing going, which is a common position for people in my line of work. It can also be the most fun because it's the imagination phase of things. And so lower pressure in a way, but also a lot of opportunities. So I became friends with Mike Butterfield in high school, his freshman year, my sophomore year, which would have been 83, 84. And we were both in the theater department and both of us were actors. And Mike was really funny. You know, we, we sort of bonded over our love of the arts. You know, we just kind of clicked right off the bat. But the other thing we developed a common interest in was true crime, which was viewed with a great deal more, I think, uh, askance questionable glances then than now, but was still a passion of mine even before I met Mike. I had read Elter Skelter as a kid. Our friendship deepened over that particular subject, and not just the, you know, the haunted house or, you know, boogeyman aspect of it, but really the psychological aspects of it. I think this business of trying to bring something horrible, something evil, something unspeakable closer to you in the hopes you'll understand it was a mutual connection point. Neither of us saw any fault in that, I guess. And of course, now it's like a rash on every channel of your satellite package. But back then, they felt a lot more unusual to meet somebody who didn't, you know, look at you like you were a weirdo for having Helter Skelter under your arm. And it seems we've continued to have variations on many of the same conversations we were having back then, below these 30 some odd years later. And at the same time, we, you know, break out of Zodiac and have uh, what I guess I'll call, you know, little phases where we'll, I'll, I'll usually accost him about some new bit of uh, information I've discovered about a Ted Bundy murder or a 
Manson case or some new crime that I hadn't been aware of. Mike will already know all about it, and so I'll start demanding more information, and he'll basically have to pull his life over to the side of the road to fill in the blanks so that I'm sated, and then I can kind of <laughs> crawl back into either Manson or Zodiac. Those two I ping-pong between. Mike is, seems most devoted to Zodiac to me, but he can speak very eloquently and with a great deal of knowledge and wisdom about a plethora of other cases and some of them not even necessarily, you know, having to do with murder and death, but just law in general. I think one of the reasons why Mike and I persist in kind of digging at these dark and disturbing stories is in an attempt to understand what could cause somebody to take these actions. And maybe a part of us wants to understand the nuances of the event, the details of the event, in some kind of unconscious need to prepare for it if it should happen to you. So you wonder, well, what would I do? And I find that this extends into my professional life as well. My bread and butter has seemed to be, in one way or another, related to dark themes, either deliberately in a very overt way or in a more subversive, symbolic way. Seems I'm always writing about demons or evil robots or serial killers or devils who would manipulate the innocent. Again, sometimes these are deeply cloaked and there's no aspect of them that would announce themselves as such, but that's secretly what I'm writing about. And then other times they're very overt. But it seems to be one of my more frequent stops on the Netflix dial and in what I read and in what I consume. Anyone who knows David Icke can attest to his decades-long interest in several elements often associated with the Zodiac case, especially the Manson murders. Fifty years after the nightmare began, David Icke joins the podcast for an extended conversation about these infamous true crime stories and their impact on Hollywood horror. Thank you for being on the show, Dave. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Wouldn't be anywhere else. <laughs> now, why did you want to do the show? Because you asked me to do the show, so I'm curious why you wanted to be on mm. How dare you? You begged me to do this show. <laughs> I just like talking about Zodiac and Manson and stuff like that. And the fact that we get to show off all the time we've wasted thinking about this. Because we're going to do it anyway, right? Yeah, so exactly. It's like, might as well record it. Yeah, I mean, you know, guys with a penchant for butcher knives and 22s were only one area of our overlapping interests in high school, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. We're both really into theater, both really into speech, which sort of manifested itself in a lot of competition, some of it good-natured, some of it not good-natured. <laughs> I know you're still, still <clears throat> resentful that I stole a part from you in high school. I know that. So There were two that you outright oh, Two, stole. okay. Um, what, 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 two, what parts were those again? They were Branwell Bronte, the sort of brain-addled brother of the Bronte sisters. Masterpieces. Yeah, masterpieces. And John, Summer and Smoke, and I played your father-in-law. Talk about a loser role for a high school <laughs> scene. 
Didn't you play my father in Masterpieces too? Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was yeah. your father-in-law in Summer and Smoke, and then your father. Yeah, so in both cases, it was like insult to injury. Not only are you not a leading man, you're the leading man's dad. <laughs> because I work in show business, I, I'm around actors a lot, but my son is also an actor, and he's studying acting and oh, yeah. at Carnegie Mellon now, and so I'm I'm around a lot of young talent a lot. I see uh, amateur theater a lot, and you know, even with people who had a lot of training and people who spent time in school or getting degrees or whatnot, I still find it a rare occasion to sit through an amateur production and find it anywhere near as good as the high school productions we put Mm -hmm. on at Camelback. It was a very unusual kind of set of circumstances and just bizarre to me because obviously there would have to be roles for kids who weren't really actors and a lot is forgiven when you're watching a high school show. But there were some productions that were just really on par with professional stuff that I see now. So I'm not, this is not just uh, nostalgia. It remains sort of miraculous to me that we were that fortunate, but you know, unfortunately we weren't getting paid. So (laughs) Um, we did do a lot of shows together. I mean, if you stop to think about it over three years in high school, I guess the most fun I had with you in the theater was Don't Drink the Water, which was a Woody Allen play. The uh, play was really hilarious. You played uh, Walter Hollander in Don't Drink the Water? Yeah, his name was Walter Hollander. and They made a movie of the play. Jackie Gleason played the role, if that's any yeah. indication as to the kind of <laughs> character that it was. Yeah. Uh, we could fill a whole podcast just with, uh, and I'm sure people are fascinated by our yeah. high school theater experiences, yeah. but they were pretty rarefied and unique. Oh yeah. We were very fortunate. I went and found the videotape of us performing in Don't Drink the Water. Mr. Hollander, after careful consideration, I feel our situation calls for a little action. What kind of action? Well, supposing you really were trapped spies, what would you do then? I deny and claim to be a caterer. What do you want from me? <laughs> it's a wonderful chatting with you, McGee. If you get any other hysterical notion, be sure to call me. Mr. Hollander, it's the only way. McGee, you're crazy. Do you know you're crazy? Years of insanity have made you crazy. <laughs> One of my first jobs in town was working in the Black Tower at uh, Universal Studios, which is where all the executives are. And the only gig I could get was in TV, even though I I didn't really watch a lot of TV. I was much more into movies as a kid. That was the door that opened, so in it I went. At that time, Universal was doing shows like Murder, She Wrote, and uh, it was the last year of Miami Vice, stuff like that. So I remember hearing phone calls from people about the fact that Thomas and Don Johnson were fighting over the length of their trailers, and they realized that Johnson's bumper was six inches longer than Thomas's and it had caused this stir. And I thought I had died and gone to some horrible TV hell. And that was sort of my baptism into the business. But during that period, even as an assistant, I got a lot of FaceTime with guys who would go on to become these sort of luminaries. And I, I reflect back a lot on times I spent with Dick Wolf on the dub stage at three in the morning and listening to him lament the uh, dead end of television, how he really wanted to go into movies. And just the the sheer irony of that. <laughs> you look at the fact that he basically owns the entire Universal lot at this you know at this point. Over the years, you've been involved in a variety of projects in all kinds of genres, and specifically the horror and sci-fi genre. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. The first wedge I could get, you know, the first foot in the door happened to be with this kind of luminary horror film meister named Sam Raimi, who's who went on to do the Spider-Man movies and a lot of other great things and is now an almost household name, I guess you'd say. But the truth is, I'm sitting in my den. I'm mostly surrounded by like Woody Allen and Martin Scorsese posters and Bob Fosse posters and stuff like that. So it's part of my taste. The Exorcist is up here too, but it really is just sort of ironic. I wound up, you know, sort of getting pigeonholed in that sort of horror sci-fi fantasy thing. In fact, one of the weirder stories, uh, you know, this trek or this sort of showbiz journey was I was working with Guillermo del Toro, the great film director, and I was fortunate enough to have been invited by him to crack an adaptation of a series of graphic novels called The Walking Dead, (laughs) which Guillermo was attached to produce and direct. And they were looking for someone to come and adapt it, and I had a great meeting with him, and then another great one, another great one, and we really hit it off. And we were set up at uh, HBO, where I had a couple of good friends working uh, in management over there. It was a Friday. We had already been set up with the network. We had had an introductory call with Mr. Kirkman, which went really well. And uh, I remember my agent saying to me, well, don't start writing yet. Let's wait for the deal to close. Literally, he said that. But sure enough, I was so psyched that weekend I started writing the pilot. So I actually have a teaser for The Walking Dead, which I wrote, and I sent it to Guillermo, and he really liked it, and we were kind of excited. And Monday came, and I got this call from the person at HBO who said, I don't know what happened, but the whole thing is dead. They're going to take it to AMC. Kirkman had developed a version of Walking Dead for NBC sometime prior with Frank Darabont, and he wanted to resuscitate that relationship, and AMC had been interested anyway, and, 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 et cetera, et cetera, didn't matter. And I was like, fine, you know, who cares? You guys will fail. <laughs> no, I didn't say <laughs> I, But I just thought, oh, that sucks. I was really psyched about this. And so Guillermo and I went on to adapt a different graphic novel for HBO that unfortunately never got picked up. I still had a blast working with Guillermo del Toro, to be honest. But the uh, little project that left us wound up becoming something of a minor curiosity on television, as I understand it. So (laughs) that's my favorite Hollywood story, the big hit show I didn't make. (laughs) One of the fun things about what I do is seeing folks who didn't really have much fame or recognition when they started. And then by the end of my show or through some other working experience, they blow up. So, for example... American Gothic, there was a little kid from Alabama who had this thick accent, was really adorable, named Lucas Black, who wound up becoming this really fine actor. He starred in uh, some of the Fast and Furious movies. He was the star of the uh, original Friday Night Lights feature. I see him from time to time, and it just blows my mind. Another example is Trisha Helfer and Katie Sackhoff and Grace Park from Battlestar Galactica, all of whom have gone on to really healthy careers. And, you know, I I see them occasionally at a restaurant or a movie theater, you know, bump into them on the street. And it's always awesome because I'll be with somebody who is, you know, freaking out at meeting this quote unquote star. But to me, they're that really hopeful person in the audition room years ago, you know, getting their first break. So it's a fun part of the job for sure. Aside from the times I remember from acting and being involved in theater and in the creative arts in high school, probably the best professional experience I've ever had that's come close to that was the show with Katie and and Trisha and Grace and 
couple folks named Eddie Olmos and Mary McDonnell called Battlestar Galactica. And that was a really unique experience. Those older and wiser than I who were exposed to it would remind me to pay close attention that not everyone got one of these in their career. These sort of strange and lovely confluence of people and subject matter and socio-political times and a certain vacuums in the executive suites that allowed for us to do things that I think in more ordinary circumstances we never would have been allowed to get away with. And just a, a, a kind of, you know, a happy accident uh, or many happy accidents. I'm really fortunate to have had that experience. It really is kind of a once in a career type of deal. Now, we've been talking about the Zodiac case since we first met each other. And over the, what, last three decades, you've always been very supportive of my research into the Zodiac case. You've always let me bounce ideas off of you. You'll read things that I've written. You'll watch shows that I've been on. But I don't think that people know just how helpful you have been over the years. There has been at least one instance when I was doing an interview for a live radio show, and you called in under a different name to ask me a question. Like when you called into the Kevin Smith show as Spencer. <laughs> yeah, I remember that because a lot of people, when they talk about the Zodiac case, they refer to the film, the David Fincher movie. And you were limited, I think, by how much you could say about it or be critical of it or discuss some details. And so I wanted to be a kind of mouthpiece for certain mm -hmm. things that I wish more people understood about what went into the making of that film, why the Robert Gray Smith book was treated as the kind of final word on the case, despite all evidence to the contrary. And then, of course, the scramble to kind of rewrite the thing on the go so that they covered their ass. Once there was uh, evidence emerging, the suspect in their movie was <laughs> disproven as the kind of suspect they wanted him to be in real life. And so for all those reasons, I wanted to provide you with a springboard into that topic without the pressure of having to drum it up yourself. And, <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, and on the off chance that you couldn't recognize my voice, I wanted to use my own real middle name, <laughs> which I know you know. And because it's a weird kind of goofy middle name, I figured that'll seal the deal. As you said, I was not at liberty to discuss it as I wished, because as a consultant on the film Zodiac, I had signed an agreement saying I wouldn't say anything derogatory or disparaging about the film. But I did appreciate you calling in. Now, I had no idea that you were going to do so, and it did take me a moment to realize that it was you. <laughs> I, I can hear it in my voice when I'm listening to the clip. The show was hosted by Kevin Smith, who was a really nice guy, a very interesting person who unfortunately passed away and was very friendly and very helpful with me and in inviting me on the show. So we're going to listen to the clip from that now, and then we'll talk about it on the other side, as they say. All right. Welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show. And my guest this evening, Michael Butterfield. I said we were going to talk about this connection, uh, this this uh, possible connection with the Church of Satan, and we're going to, but Michael, I want to take this call first, and then we'll get into that. Uh, caller, you are live on the Kevin Smith Show. Your first name and from where are you calling? Uh, hi, this is Spencer from Clovis, New Mexico. Hello, Spencer. Hi. I, 
Hi there, uh, and I just uh, had a question for Mr. Butterfield. I'm, I'm a little curious. I saw the Fincher film that you mentioned earlier, which seemed pretty extensively researched and comprehensive. And what I know a movie can't tell the whole story about anything. It seemed to make a pretty conclusive statement. So my question is, what is it about the case that you feel is still an untold story or wasn't addressed or was misrepresented? Wow, that's a tough question in the sense that this is uh, we only have 20 minutes left. <laughs> um, I guess I could answer that question by saying, first of all, I, I was a consultant on that film, like many others, researchers and people involved in the case. And it was researched extensively in the sense that it was researched just enough to confirm what they put in the script, which was based on a book which was based largely on erroneous news reports. And the story that you've heard, which is that the Zodiac Killer did this and did that, and that he probably knew the victims, he was an expert marksman, that he called into a TV show, that they recorded his voice, all of these things that have become sort of part of the popular myth of the Zodiac Killer, those things aren't true. If you saw the movie Zodiac, you'll know that during the film there's a part where a guy who calls himself Sam calls into a local TV show and talks with attorney Melvin Belli. The movie tries to give people the impression that that person was the Zodiac, when in fact the police found the person who made those phone calls and determined that he wasn't the Zodiac. He was a patient in a mental hospital. So that's just a, one example of the way that the movie tries to make you think that one version of reality is true, when in reality... <laughs> the exact opposite. And the reason that was done is because they're trying to make Arthur Lee Allen seem like the Zodiac. Why would they want to do that? Because that's the conclusion of the book that the film was based on. And as director David Fincher and the producer Brad Fisher and others stated repeatedly, this was not an attempt to make a true story or a true account of the case. It was more an attempt to tell the story through the eyes of Robert Graysmith. Interesting. Do you think they began in that direction, wanting just to tell kind of the fictionalized version, or do you think they discovered that they were on a path that was wrong, but they were too far down at the stop, almost like Oliver Stone started making the movie saying that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and then discovered he was wrong halfway through filming? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there in the sense that I think most people, when they buy a nonfiction book, they assume it's nonfiction. So when David Fincher and Brad Fisher and the rest of them bought the rights to Robert Graysmith's book, they assumed it was nonfiction. And it wasn't until they had a screenplay adaptation of that book and were casting and set in motion that they suddenly began to realize that that version of the story did not coincide with reality. And instead of going back and rewriting the script from scratch, it appears that what they did was they went back and tried to adjust things, which in the end gives you a very convoluted version of the story. They may have set out to tell the true story, but once they realized that the source material wasn't true, they decided to stick with the source material. And that's why the advertisement went from saying a true story to based on real events, you know, until finally what they were saying was it's basically Robert's version of the story. Wow, I bet uh, most people who have seen the movie don't know that. Well, anybody who saw the movie and is interested in learning what is the difference between the true story and the Hollywood version, you can go to my website at ZodiacKillerFacts.com 
in the myths and legends section, there is an article called Fact versus Fincher that will explain scene by scene what is and is not true in that film and it's uh, referenced with sources and everything so you know that is factually accurate. I appreciate your question. Spencer Thank is you very um, much. Spencer, is this your first time to call us? It sure is. Well, don't let it be your last. Good to have you with sure us tonight. Is. All right. Thanks for the call. I also distinctly remember trying to make sure that as I signed off, I had a shit-eating grin on my face, tone to my voice, so that you, because by that point, I knew that you knew it was me, but I didn't want to blow the covers. Just tried to sort of say goodbye with a smirk in my voice so that you would know that I knew. Yeah, well, it worked because when he said, and I should say, you weren't trying to pull anything over on Kevin. He was being a great guy having us on the show. You were just trying to No, I genuinely ask- I genuinely wanted you to talk about that subject and yeah. I was afraid no one else was going to ask you that question. But that's why it was so funny when at the end he said, "Spencer, is this the first time you've ever called in?" and you said, "It sure is." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I mean. I wanted to make sure. <laughs> I remember it must have been the summer of 86 or 87 after Graysmith's book came out when we tried to call the San Francisco Chronicle to talk to him. Do you remember that? Totally. I think we were trying to make the point that the guy who was named Star in the book needed to be checked more thoroughly. I think that was the whole point. That's the irony for you. (laughs) And I I remember, yeah, I remember them saying what you don't understand is there were dozens of people who we thought fit the bill who turned out not to. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I remember someone, because we didn't talk to Graysmith. No. We talked to somebody else there. Yeah. And I, I remember them making some kind of joke. Oh, he doesn't work here anymore. You know, he's hiding from the Zodiac. And it sounded like giggling. Like, <laughs> we've been talking about a lot of true crime stories over the years. And one of them, I would say it's a mutual fascination that has become sort of inextricably linked to the Zodiac case is the Manson story. I still remember we were at the 7-Eleven by my house when we found out that Charles Manson was set on fire. I remember talking to you about it, but I don't remember the specifics like that. That's interesting. This was a group of individuals known as the family who committed a series of horrific murders in the summer of 1969, 50 years ago, and they were led by a man named Charles Manson. Now, today, that name carries a lot more weight with it than it did when we were kids. Although at that time, he was the boogeyman. And so it always had represented for both of us this dark chapter of history that even if you do read a book like Helter Skelter or you watch the movie Helter Skelter, the original television film, or you watch Charles Manson's interviews or you watch the court footage or you see the footage of his crazy followers or you see the film Manson or any other documentary, it still doesn't explain it. There's no explanation for that. It's horrifying. So for you, I know that your interest in that case has always been attached to the fact that you live in California and you can go some of these places and enter the story on another level where it's more real instead of just reading about it or seeing images on the internet. Well, a pretty hilarious recent example is just the fact that You can go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is the new Quentin Tarantino film that intersects with the 
the Manson events at a theater that's featured in the movie. So you can sit in the <laughs> Cinerama Dome watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which features the Cinerama Dome. That's how you know close you are to it. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I live in what they call the San Fernando Valley, and anytime I need to go take a meeting or, or usually meet for someone for lunch, anything like that, oftentimes it's what they call over the hill or into Beverly Hills or West Hollywood or Santa Monica, someplace like that. A very, you know, popular and, and efficient thoroughfare is Benedict Canyon. So I'd pass by Cielo Drive, just which is the Mike, I don't know how much contextualizing, like if I say Cielo Drive, is that self-explanatory? Well, but, the Cielo Drive is the crime scene, the house belonging mm-hmm. to film director Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate. So I drive by Cielo Drive frequently, like, you know, maybe a couple times a month. And it's not beyond me to, if I have a free afternoon or if I'm early to my next destination, just take a little turn, maybe cruise up there. So I'll ask myself why. It all goes back to the same reason I I read Helter Skelter long before I, I came to California. In fact, when I was still a kid growing up in Phoenix, I read the book quite young. And at the time, my maternal grandmother was living with us. And she had once lived in Los Angeles, and it was during the time of the Manson killings, and she was in the same community or neighborhood as the LaBianca family. And she used to tell me stories, literally like out of some Norman Rockwell (laughs) painting with a horrible twist. You know, she would Mm -hmm. bounce me on her knee telling me stories about having these uh, movers come in and push these gigantic antique pieces of furniture to in front of the front door and all the kind of hysterical goings on that were taking place. And it was just fascinating to me. And then I don't remember where that was in the timeline, but it was uh, around the time I first saw the original TV miniseries. And I think I read the book after that. Well, the miniseries is just terrifying. The miniseries remains terrifying even all these years later. I think it was 76 But, you know, in my family, maybe partly because there was this bit of lore that kind of skirted against, you know, the reality of it, the fact that my grandmother had lived uh, not far from the La Biancas, the fact that we had actually traveled from L.A., we had lived in L.A. and moved to Phoenix, and the period of time we were living in L.A., which was, you know, before I was seven, I think, we we lived uh, at one point in Thousand Oaks, which is, you know, only a few miles away from Spawn Ranch. Just all these things that would sort of made it feel close to home to me, I think kind of fueled the interest. But it was really then reading the book and getting into the, some of the detail and that feeling that anybody who's into true crime recognizes of being at once repelled and compelled at what you're reading. Certainly if you're a young person and you're obsessive by nature, which I was and remain, the kind of thing that would kind of crawl its way into some corner of your brain and not leave you alone until you could figure it out. Yeah, yeah. You don't really know what it is you're trying to figure out necessarily. You just know you need to know more and you need to, you need to bring it closer somehow. You need to read another book about it. Certainly God help us with the internet. You can go down all kinds of rabbit holes. And if you're a writer like me, there's nothing more convenient to procrastination than mm-hmm. the old Charlie Manson rabbit hole. So, yeah, and there's yeah. always something new to learn and always something new to discover. And by the way, living in Los Angeles and living in this part of LA, 
you'll read something you hadn't read or discover something. You can hop in your car and go look at it or go, yeah. you know, visit the area or see if it, and, and why, what, you know, it's like Richard Dreyfus and the mashed potatoes. In close <laughs> this the means country. something. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're <laughs> chasing this thing. You're trying to understand. You don't even really know quite what the objective is. I think after all these years, you and I have been talking about Manson and the Zodiac and other cases. It seems to me that so-called genre of, you know, discussion or, 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 or category of consumption has gotten so much more popular over the years. It seems to me that the, the objective has to do with understanding evil and, and that maybe in an effort to understand it, you can, I don't know, you know, ward it off, recognize it faster, help absolve it of your surroundings, of your environment. I don't know, but it has something to do with understanding that kind of behavior. And I think one of the things that later discussions you and I have had that have involved other cases, BTK probably being one of the more prominent ones, that's the uh, bind, torture, kill, strangler from the 1970s in Wichita, Kansas, is that you start to understand that it may not, in fact, be evil. And, it, it, you know, we're, I remember when you and I would talk about these things uh, years ago, there was this sort of obligatory sense of needing to be you know, very solemn and, 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 you know, sort of always being mindful to, you know, curse those, the, the, the evildoer who perpetrated this. And now we just know so much more about the nature of psychopathy, about how mm-hmm. it works, how it functions, about how it's, it's not as though there's not moral judgment to be made. But somehow it has been stripped of some of its mythology yeah, and some of yeah. its inscrutable kind of mystery. And even though there's there's so much we still don't understand about it, much less you know how we might ever one day treat it or cure it, uh, just knowing that it's identifiable is somehow soothing. Oh yeah, and, and you know that that that's why I think I still pursue it. It's interesting that you bring up BTK in that instance because. And he was anonymous for so many years, and there was this image built up about him that he was this monster, you know, this criminal genius. And then when they finally caught him and he's standing there in court basically gloating about these horrific things that he's done, you see him as such a pathetic person. It's so difficult to view them as some sort of super criminal or evil genius or anything like that because you're talking about somebody like Ted Bundy or Charles Manson or someone like that. The mystique built up around them usually has very little to do with who they actually are. And I think that's part of trying to understand all of it, too, is that you're trying to fathom how does somebody end up like this? What short circuits in their mind to the point where this is normal to them? And I I think it's interesting that you were talking about how you don't know exactly what the objective is. Anytime you're fascinated by something, it's hard to say why you're fascinated by it. But I think that it's almost this idea that if you read enough, someday you'll be able to understand it enough to compartmentalize it and put it away and it won't frighten you anymore. And Stephen King was the one who said that an interest in horror stories can sometimes be a rehearsal for your own death, that you're confronting your fear of death from a distance. And I know with the Zodiac case, we've talked over the years about how some elements of that story are just mind-numbingly terrifying, like the situation at Lake Berryessa, where a guy shows up in a costume, and you think you're being robbed, and you're trying to cooperate so nobody gets hurt, and next thing you know, the guy's stabbing you for no reason whatsoever. That kind of a story is just one of thousands, 
in the true crime universe. And there's been times when I've been looking at a map of California and it's like just one giant crime scene, you know, just, <laughs> just thinking of all the things that, oh, this is where that happened, you know. And with the Manson story, the more you get close to the reality of it, the more it starts to become less of a true crime story and it starts to become a reality of the real horrors of life. I mean, I remember the first time I can't remember when it was, but the first time you took me to the house on Cielo Drive, the gate was closed and we were just talking about the the reality of what happened that night of these people just showing up and getting access to the property and how at that time it terrified people in a way that nothing had before. The Mansons supposedly had a hit list of celebrities and was it like Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton were on it and other people and the terror that it created at that time was unique. And I don't think that a lot of people who read about the story today can really understand it because a lot of that was still lingering when you and I were kids. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and it was still at a time when the nostalgia factor for the Manson thing was less of a cottage industry and it was still just kind of this old, really horrible crime. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, they've made movies about it and, and, and so forth. It wasn't, it's not that it wasn't a you know, celebrated, kind of, kind of notoriously celebrated event, but it was, it's taken on much more than that in the ensuing years because of our ability to look at it in a broader context, obviously, but also I think because uh, the culture has kept it alive. It continues to represent something meaningful to us. And in, in fact, having seen the Tarantino movie a couple times now, What's fascinating about his approach is it does succeed in its own interesting way in stripping the magnanimity out of the event. In other words, what like what you were saying before about the, you know, there's a sort of pathetic puniness to these people when you look at them in a different light, like the BTK strangler, you know, giving his testimony in court. And in a similar fashion not using the same you know setting or or scenario but but uh, with the same sort of idea in mind tarantino manages to kind of do that to the manson killers and it's the first time i ever thought of that event or the killers themselves or just the whole nasty business as something other than overwhelming and powerful and meaningful and significant it suddenly, for just for that moment in the movie, seemed ridiculous, absurd, almost laughably pathetic. Yeah. And it's interesting to view it in that, because, of course, you know, any of these you know, symbols of terror and, and boogeymen and any figure that, that, that the culture has ever really feared. And so uh, maybe part of the objective is to reach that point where you truly lack the fear. You you come to understand not just that individual, but the events that allow that individual to do what they did is somehow a fear that you've conquered. And I don't know, may, may, that may be it. You may be right. Yeah, facing it finally. When, yeah. when you're finally confronted with what you were really afraid of. When you're a kid, the odds of you being killed by the Manson family were incredibly low. Yes. Um, but it doesn't mean that it didn't scare you or you didn't think about it at night. When I would read about, what did Charlie call it, the creepy crawlies? Yeah. Where they would sneak into the house and move the furniture around and then leave. 
waking up to that, you know, just knowing know. someone's been in your house. <laughs> Those kinds of things used to scare me a lot. But if you stop to think about just how stupid the Manson family was, they were viewed as this master criminal organization and their minions were everywhere and they could get you anytime or whatever. But in reality, what was it? Tex Watson left a bloody fingerprint on the yeah. button to the gate. They threw their bloody clothes over a cliff at such a point where a news team was able to find it just by counting the number of minutes it would take to change clothes from the yeah. murder point. Yeah, they threw yeah. the gun through the, the bushes. <laughs> they were confessing in jail. Yeah. Susan Atkins was spilling the beans about everything to just some stranger in jail. And they were lining up to give <laughs> Bugliosi, the prosecutor, testimony to make sure that these people never got out. I mean, yeah, it was it was just the whole circus of it, I think, is as interesting as the events of that night. When you're talking about the Manson family, you know, it was a circumstance. It was an individual with other individuals. I don't think any of them would have been running around killing people in that fashion if they weren't in that circumstance. They might have done something else. Manson might have found another group of people. He might have done it in some other way. But when you start to think about his connection to the Tate House through Terry Melcher, the music producer who he said had screwed him over, and other things, it seems, especially when you were talking, too, about whether Charlie ever killed anyone, the stories about him confronting the Black Panther, being around when Shorty Shea was murdered at the ranch, all that seems like it's a groupthink. Yeah coalescing of certain minds where it worked in that situation. And one of the things that fascinates me about that is when we were growing up, the Mansons were described, it was always the family. It always talked about the family, like it was this organization that was out there. And you had people like, what's her name? Um, is it Squeaky Fromm? Who shot at Ford? Yeah, the, yeah. Squeaky Fromm tried to take a shot at President Ford, but she was always on television, you know, glassy-eyed <laughs> look sitting there talking about how Charlie loved the trees. That's one of the reasons why I have so much trouble accepting this theory that the Manson family was also responsible for the Zodiac crimes. Because in order to believe that, you have to believe that they were competent. <laughs> they, they barely got away with the murders that they committed for as long as they did. It's a, it's a wonder they weren't caught sooner. Yeah, I tend to advise any of my friends who want to dip a toe into either the Manson or Zodiac worlds to avoid any <laughs> literature that propagates that nutty theory. Because I agree. I mean, you know, the Mansons were the gang that couldn't shoot straight. But the reality is it just could not have happened at any other time in our history, I don't think, in, in yeah, quite yeah. the same way. I, yeah. I think the, the drugs that were being consumed were the, the mixture of methadrine speed and LSD is about as close as you can get to manufacturing a psychotic state chemically as any combination of drugs. And they were and, doing that. And combined with the counterculture and the changes sure. in sexual mores and yeah, people, I mean, you know, leaving their families and looking for other figures in their lives. Well, and all yeah, that you, was had, a, you had these people escaping repression. And so they were a rubber band snapping back the other way. And if you were, if you were damaged, like it appears the all three of these women definitely were. They were either coming from bitter divorces or 
in the case of Atkins, uh, really just a, a, a completely dissolved family, Susan Atkins, you know, yeah, it's, it, it's almost a perfect storm. And yet, as we were saying before, you go, well, there were some two dozen other members of various standing in the Manson family at the time, any one of which could have been selected for these two nights of murder and were not. So would they have done it? Well, we know that other members of the family were recruited into other crimes, some of which resulted in murder, like the Gary Hinman case, which preceded the Tate-LaBianca killings and the Shorty Shea murder, which Mm. these were done by other members of the families. In that case, you might say, well, yeah, between the drugs, the culture, the times, and this con man's messianic ability to brainwash aided by other factors like no nutrition and and kind of desperate living. Maybe you or I would have done the same thing. But gee, it sure is nicer to think, if you're on the side of the folks that don't want to let any of them out on parole, it sure is nicer to think, isn't it, that, (laughs) that no, these folks are different. They were chosen for a reason. They had something missing in them that I don't have missing in me. Yeah, and you could yeah. fill me with whatever drugs and shitty circumstances and free sex and crazy times you want. You know, who knows? For me, I don't know the answer to that. I'm afraid, uh, and when you look at Nazi Germany, you certainly are presented with a, with a, a much, much greater piece of evidence. I'm afraid that the answer is we're all capable of some pretty fucking crazy and inhumane shit. And it's, it's circumstances that prevent them. But, you know, I don't subscribe to that. I just know how easy it would be to sort of to succumb to it mm-hmm. if you thought about it too long, because there's so much evidence to support the fact that, you know, we, we can go either way, as uh, Lord of the Flies <laughs> once told us. So I, I guess that's part of the reason why it remains fascinating, because we continue to seek the answer. You know, when we want to make people evil... It's often in an attempt to distance ourselves from them. And when you're talking about some of the Manson girls, sometime a few years ago, there were some of the original interrogation tapes that were released from the Manson case. And one of them was Leslie Van Houten. And she was talking in this way that you see news clips and things. But when you're listening to something like that, it's a very isolated incident where she's alone in a room with somebody. And this is audio or video? It's audio. Yeah. And I want to say that it's available on this website, I think is called Cielo Drive. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know, I, I know it. But I listened to a lot of those tapes from one of the early guys who started talking to Buyosi and some of the other people involved. Paul but listening Watkins. to yeah. yeah, Watkins. And listening to her talk was fascinating and revolting and strange. But then, you know, these other things that you hear about how, like, when she, I think it was her father who was saying that when he went to visit her in prison, she was worried about whether or not the backs of her clothing could be adjusted for when her wings grow out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's comical. It's absurd. But did she really believe that? How far gone was she? How much can you really hold her responsible for what she was doing? Because mm-hmm. if you've reached that point, and I know that especially for a lot of those followers at that time, that was the height of their um, disconnect from reality, you know, the kids sitting out on the sidewalk and carving swastikas into their foreheads. That's when it manifested the most. So much of what motivates someone to do what they do has a lot to do with what they call the signature. In profiling, they refer to something known as the signature. Is what is the killer always doing to satisfy a need? 
it's not just about an MO, how he actually carries out the crime. It's what is he doing and what does he get out of it? What satisfies him out of it? So with somebody like Ted Bundy, it's, I hate to say it's easy, but it's easier to understand his motivations because at the root of it is this sexual compulsion, which even if you don't share it or fully understand it, it's kind of an easy thing to ascribe as a motive because he has this urge. He needs to fulfill it. And whether the urge is dominating and brutalizing women and that started out and then it became killing because he couldn't leave a witness. And then the killing became part of the thrill and whatever. But with someone like Zodiac, the actions are so difficult to understand. The motivations are difficult to understand. And that's where I think a lot of the problem with bringing in other theories comes in because, you know, there's theories that Dennis Rader was the Zodiac. (laughs) Right, right. The theory about the so-called Manson-Zodiac connection is that the crimes were carried out at Manson's instruction by various individuals, specifically Uh, Bruce Davis. Bruce Davis, right. Yeah. Bruce Davis, along with others in the family, was arrested on the day after the Zodiac killed the cab driver in San Francisco. There's also problems with accepting those theories because of the psychology of it. It's not just the MO. All these people killed, and they killed with guns or knives or whatever. But with somebody like Bundy or BTK, it's a sexual compulsion. That's where you can at least start to understand what's going on with them and why they're going out looking for a victim. With the Zodiac, I don't see those elements in play in the same way. If you believe that the Manson family was so competent that they could carry out multiple crime sprees at the same time, all for some motive that remains unknown, but it must have been something like creating chaos or fear or terror or whatever, you have to understand that the actions of the Zodiac play out according to certain interpretations of psychology. You know, you can look at what he's doing and some of it does make sense if you look at it from a certain point of view. But you can't apply that same logic when looking at the crimes committed by the Mansons. How did this fit in? It's it's not an easy thing to fake a psychopathology or a psychology of a certain kind of killer when you're really doing it for some other reason. You mentioned Vincent Boyosi. When I talked to Vincent Boyosi years ago about this, he was immediately skeptical of it, and he thought it was pretty laughable. Oh, the Zodiac connection? Yeah, he he was totally right off the bat. And now you could argue, well, he's just trying to cover up his own incompetence, not catching them for that. (laughs) But it's it's absurd on the surface. And he was very dismissive. Buyosi had some pretty choice words when I talked to him about the so-called Manson Zodiac conspiracy theory. The claim that the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office had uncovered evidence proving that the Manson family was responsible for the Zodiac crimes, but destroyed that evidence in a cover-up. I can call you Michael, right? Yes, of course. I've heard allegations, Michael, about this, but I don't know of any evidence at all that Manson was connected with Zodiac. The story is that someone who was involved in the prosecution came across evidence from one of the Zodiac crimes, namely a hood and some other things, and realized what it was and what it meant, and then not only conspired to cover it up, but hired some legal expert to consult and tell them to cover it up and then have Bruce Davis's file sealed. Oh my God, that's preposterous. It certainly wasn't I, and I was the head guy. Uh, What you're talking about is a crime, obstruction of justice. So that's pure, unadulterated insanity. 
I have never heard the preposterous allegation that you just mentioned there. This person says that his brother-in-law worked for the DA's office at that time and was part of this conspiracy. Oh my God. And that oh. DA Younger was involved. Oh, that, that's just so, just we're, we're talking about crimes. It'd be for, for no reason. If Manson committed more murders than the Manson murders, why would anyone want to protect him on that? Whose name and name, what names are they mentioning? Well, that's the thing. See, the, the are person... Are they saying that I knew this? No, exactly the opposite, that it was all around you and kept from you. <laughs> the story is that this evidence was found, I guess, in one of the searches of the ranch in Inyo County, and that it was the zodiac hood with the crossed circle on the front. Really? But what they're saying is that a bunch of people in the office discussed this and then hired a consultant to tell them what to do and that it was decided because it was too expensive and it was too risky that they might lose Bruce Davis on some other charge. Mm -hmm. They decided to have Bruce Davis's file sealed and apparently the evidence just destroyed or evaporated or whatever and that this secret has not only been kept all these years but that it's something that everybody knows and, and won't let out. Oh, no, no, no. That's just, God, as I say, I've heard an allegation that uh, maybe Manson was involved in the uh, Zodiac killings. Just that vague general allegation. But this is very specific. This is going way, way beyond that into a specific evidence and a massive cover-up. This is the first time I've ever heard that. It's just preposterous on its face, and it, obviously it's 100% wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if somebody wanted to seal a file, such as Bruce Davis's file, wouldn't that involve a judge? Of course. So they would have to You're get a judge? You're talking about massive, yeah, massive conspiracy here. But we're talking, uh, just by what you told me, many, many people being involved for no believable reason. They'd, they'd be committing a crime, number one, and to further no uh, believable end, or no end that makes any sense. It's preposterous on its face. Biosi also pointed out that it wasn't consistent with what the Mansons were doing. So much of what they were doing at that time was about certain circumstances, certain grudges against certain people who lived at certain homes, certain other individuals that had crossed Manson or he believed they'd been crossed, or just unfortunate people who were sucked into these circumstances, like the LaBiancas. Right. So I don't see any solid basis for that connection, but I do think it's interesting that these things have become inextricably linked over the years because they're all part of this overall chaos, the violent chaos in California in the late 1960s. Well, in some respects, the same week of the late 1960s. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the yeah. proximity of Tate LaBianca to some of the key dates. Yeah, basically, if you think about it, we're recording this right now. It's, what, August 8th today? Mm-hmm. August 8th is the anniversary of the Tate murders, and then there were the La Bianca murders shortly after that. Right. But earlier in August is when the first Zodiac letters showed up on, that were mailed right. on July 31st, 1969. Right. And the first letter to use the name Zodiac purportedly arrived around August 4th. So you have the introduction of Zodiac in Northern California and it's the Manson family going on in Southern <laughs> California. And they both involve bizarre messages. In one of the crimes, the Zodiac left a handwritten message on a car door. And that immediately 
made some people wonder if maybe someone in the Manson family was involved because they had left handwritten messages at the crime scenes, too. Well, but even putting aside the Hail Mary connection between Manson and Zodiac, what I miss or what I wish uh, was out there somewhere was some piece of film of a policeman or a journalist or someone just with the presence of mind to have been able to absorb both of those events at the same time and to have remarked about it. Like, what the hell is going on yeah. in, in the state of California? Has anyone yeah. looked at the at the, the second week in August? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Like, what I was mean, it, a three full moons in a row? Or? I know. Uh, Your CDC number B33920, which is scheduled for the week of March 24th, 1997. The facts of this case speak for themselves. The consummate brutality of the unspeakable premeditated murders for which Mr. Manson has been convicted clearly demonstrate his wanton disregard for human life. Now, stop. Okay. Now, that's my point exactly. If I were guilty of that, that would be true. But as long as that court stands, then that's what makes me what I am to that man's mind. That is not me. He gets his reality from that court. If that court says I'm guilty, he's going to agree with it. If a Roman Catholic comes over here and gets in your district attorney's office, Rome, mama, Rome. That's talking all the way back to one cross and they'll do anything in the world to put one cross back in order because if they don't put one cross back in order, they got Islam right up their ass from Chicago bouncing that goddamn fucking basketball. Uh, Sooner or later, you guys are going to have to step out in this hallway and see who this hallway belongs to. That's my mop and broom over in the corner, Jack. You know, whatever you guys are playing out there that's nice for you to play when you got the money, that's cool. But when you're down in a hard time where you ain't got nothing but the mind you're mopping and slopping with, you got to deal with what you got to deal from here, honey buns. And when you can do that, then that's the penitentiary. I don't know all the things you know, but you don't know the things I know either. I don't disrespect you and take your rights, so give me my fucking rights. You can't fool me. You can't trick me. I didn't have nothing to do with killing those people, period. I told you that all the way down the line. I wasn't around anyone when they were killed. I'm not saying I'm not capable of doing it myself. But I'm just saying this, I did not do that. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the way that the whole Manson story is being revisited now because it's the 50th anniversary. As you said about the Tarantino movie, people are much more willing to view someone like Charles Manson as a human being now that he's gone. You know, he died recently and there was a lot of fanfare about that. Of course, there was a report that he had died going all over the Internet and it turned out that he was just taken to the hospital. Right. And then there was Charles Manson was near death. He was going to die any day now. And everybody was talking about it everywhere. And it was on the news and constantly. And then, of course, when he finally did die, it was viewed as some climactic event in history. And now that he's dead and we've had some distance from him, it's a little easier to look at him more, I think, in the way that the actor Steve Railsback portrayed him in the original television miniseries. (laughs) 
Did I ever tell you that Steve Rails back auditioned for me once? No, you failed to mention that. <laughs> yeah, when we were doing this show, American Gothic, not to be confused with the, I think, 2016 American Gothic on CBS. This was also a CBS show. And I was producing it with my friend, Sean Cassidy, who's former teen idol, but also a really accomplished writer-producer, and Sam Raimi, who I was working for at the time, running a TV company. This was a horror show about a little kid in South Carolina and this sheriff who was his father and who was, we never said it outright, but it was probably the devil. And that role went to the actor Gary Cole, who's become really celebrated in the last few years on the show Veep. And I think he has a new show, a half hour, but he is really just an amazing actor. And And he was famous for Midnight Caller. Yeah. Well, he was famous for the television show Midnight Caller, but he was most famous in the beginning for portraying the murderer Jeffrey McDonald. Ah, yes. Fatal Vision miniseries. Yes. In fact, it was watching Fatal Vision that gave us the idea. Because when he was mentioned at first by our casting people, all we knew was Midnight Caller. You know, we were like, well, no, this guy's supposed to be, you know, scary and intimidating. And they were like, watch this miniseries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he turned out to be bullseye perfect and uh, also a delight to work with and an awesome human being. But the finalists alongside Gary Cole was Steve Railsback. It was between the two of them. And Railsback's name had come up because we were just kind of looking at who had ever played anyone devil-like or satanic. We were making this character sort of the the Rolling Stone devil, you know, a, Mm -hmm. a man of wealth and taste. So he wasn't supposed to be overtly spooky. He was supposed to be charming. So the charm thing was was the complication with Railsback because Mm -hmm. he could be scary, but when you meet him, there's a presence that he has that really can be intimidating. And I honestly couldn't tell if he was like really shy or if he had maybe a screw loose or he was a burnout. Like what it turned out he was just a a shy guy. He was one Mm -hmm. of he was an actor who used acting to express himself. My impression anyway, I never got to know the guy, but my impression was that he was shy, but his audition would have been perfect if we were just going to make him like a villain. Mm -hmm. But we really needed this guy to kind of, you know, be the likable guy who's, you know, killing people. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. uh, and so that didn't quite fit, but it really was something meeting him because I think of, of all of us in the room, you know, shaking hands and saying hello and all that. I was the only one who had seen Helter Skelter, <laughs> you know, 12 times and knew every line of dialogue from the movie and trying not to mention that to him before he read for me. Yeah. So um, very uh, memorable Hollywood moment for sure. He recently did an interview with Rolling Stone magazine where he talked about how portraying Charles Manson had damaged his career in some ways for at least for a period of time. You know, he went on to make some other fascinating and great movies like uh, Stuntman, the Stuntman with Peter O'Toole. I recently got that on DVD and I had forgotten just what a astoundingly bizarre and entertaining film that was. By the way, this is another name droppy Hollywood story, but through a series of circumstances i wound up sitting next to peter o'toole for super bowl 41 which was <laughs> which was the uh, colts and the bears and he was just my you know seatmate. i mean i was mm-hmm. i talked to him through the whole game he was really into the game had he was rooting for the bears and and like the colts were winning and i i dared him to change his 
rooting stripes and he wouldn't do it and he was all indignant about it in a funny way but he but i asked him about working with steve Railsback, and he just kind of went oh my dear was he something like you can tell he really impressed o'toole so oh, yeah wow. I, i'm sure it did ruin his career much like i don't know that andy robinson feels his career was ruined but it limited his career yeah because, definitely yeah uh it was a you know it was, it was such a kind of iconic role it kind of bronzes you you know you can't get out of it it's interesting that hasn't happened to any of the other people playing charlie manson in all the years since you know in the very well, he was the first so, well he, he and he was also at a time when there were three channels and he right, was probably yeah. seen by 40 million people by you know the first night alone but unlike these others but it's really you know a unique performance and it's just weird that i actually got to meet him you know well, and he's known for unique performances. In The Stuntman, he plays the exact opposite of Charles Manson. I think that's what impressed O'Toole, was that he, I think he may have been expecting, like, you know, somebody crazy like, person. intense, or, yeah, or someone chewing yeah. the scenery, or any of that wasn't his character at all in that. Because he plays this, I think he's, isn't he he's like, like a, a bland, he's supposed to be the bland, blonde star, right? Yeah, but he's also, I think in the story, he was like a criminal or escapee or something who wanders onto this set and gets this job as a stuntman working for Peter O'Toole, who is a lunatic. And you're not even sure whether or not he's really going to kill Steve Railsback in these stunts or not. And Steve Railsback just plays this, you know, mild mannered guy who goes through the whole thing. And then he was in this movie called life force, which was directed by Toby Hooper, famous for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And I, never saw, I, I remember the movie. I remember the poster, but I never saw it. It's one of the most notorious sci-fi films in history because, first of all, it's directed by Toby Hooper, and it's about vampires from space. And there's oh, a scene okay. in it at the end of the film where it's like vampires taking over London that's just awesome. It's amazing to watch. But also, it's probably most famous for having a character a creature an alien in the form of a woman who walks around entirely naked throughout the film and steve railsback has all these bizarre scenes where he's supposed to be standing in front of her and sort of absorbing her energy and things where he's reacting to other people turning into vampires and things if you want to see patrick stewart from star trek liquefied into a pile of bloody goo this is the movie for you but Steve Railsback went through all of these films and then sort of disappeared for a while. And he was in a lot of straight-to-video things. And then his career was sort of revived a little bit when Clint Eastwood put him in the film In the Line of Fire. And after, yeah, he played one of the, I think, one of the FBI agents. There's a scene where they arrive at the home of their suspect and they're looking for him and they run into these FBI agents and Steve Railsback is one of them. And that sort of jump-started his career in some ways. He went on to do a couple episodes of The X-Files as a returning character. And then Steve Railsback went on to do things like The Devil's Rejects and other films and had a career that's been all over the place. And he is now just recently sort of having a, a resurgence in notoriety because of the 50th anniversary of Manson. And he was in Oh. Yeah, and he was interviewed for Rolling Stone magazine recently where he talked about meeting Quentin Tarantino. And them sort of, you know, having this exchange about how much he loved him in that role. But also, I learned some things reading that article that I had never known before. And one of them was that Railsback, apparently his manager, was the man who owned the home on Cielo Drive 
where Sharon Tate. Oh, Antobelli or something like that. Rudy Altobelli. Rudy Altobelli. Wow. And he owned that house, and he was the one oh, who rented it. That's fucking weird. That to is Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. But even weirder. Oh my god. Was that apparently a few years after the murders, he invited Steve Railsback to crash at his house for a while. Oh my god. Is and Steve went there. Yeah, and Steve Railsback said, I'm quoting here, he says, I knew that was the house, but I didn't think about it. It was so peaceful. Rudy never talked about it when I was there. Coincidence is coincidence. The guy who played with Charles Manson was staying in the house where the murders happened. Yeah, that's crazy. And then, of course, for someone like me, I have to mention this. In the Rolling Stone article, he says that some of the actors who visited him on the set of Helter Skelter included... David Niven and Peter Falk from Columbo. You know, I adore Peter Falk and Columbo. And just the image in my mind of Peter Falk meeting Charles Manson is enough. But he also says in this article that one of the people who came to hang out with him on the set was the author Truman Capote. Oh, my God. How weird. These people were all Mansonites. Yeah, it's just, a, I mean, think about who else could you suck into this story? I mean, you got Peter Falk, David Niven, Truman Capote. I mean, it's just insane. Wow. I would love to find some excuse to cast Steve Hales back in something. Well, he's still working. He did a movie last year. Oh, yeah. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, you mentioned that Andy Robinson's career was sort of hindered a little bit because of his portrayal and notoriety as the killer in Dirty Harry. And the same thing happened to Steve Railsback because he played Charles Manson and people sort of saw him as that part and nothing else. But the only thing that can make you forget Steve Railsback's portrayal as Charles Manson is Steve Railsback's portrayal of the serial killer Ed Gein. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it was produced by Steve Railsback. And it was a straight-to-video release, I think, about 10, 15 years ago. But he is amazing in that film. It's really a little character study that follows him around through the events that went on. It's fictionalized in some ways. And there are scenes where he's talking to his dead mother or where he's dressing up in the skin of his victims and dancing around. And one of the most terrifying scenes in the film is where some kids come to visit him at his house. And of course, you know what's in the house. They don't. And he has these shrunken heads hanging off of a door or something. And he has Nazi material around him and stuff. These are all things that the real killer had in his home. And he's trying to explain his interest in this to these children. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that's amazing about it is is that his performance is nothing like Charles Manson at all. It's a complete departure from anything that you might even vaguely resemble that sort of take on evil. He plays it straight. And he's very convincing. He's very compelling. And the film is very frightening, all because of his performance. Wow, I'll have to check it out. But Steve Railsback is just terrifying as Charles Manson. He did capture that absolutely deranged behavior, that deranged look that Manson could have. But he also showed what a con man he was and what a pathetic individual he was, how he was really powerless in the end. I can't remember what the line is in the movie where uh, the actor playing Vincent Biosi says something to him about how, well, you know, I guess now that you've been convicted, the uh, race war is not going to work out the way you thought it would. And Steve Railsback says something like, yeah, I guess you kind of threw a monkey wrench in that plan. It exposes him as yeah. this yeah. little con man, this little dictator. Yeah. And I remember they remade that movie years later. 
And I didn't think it was anywhere near as effective because I think that the person who was portraying Manson didn't understand that vital aspect of him, the showman, the, the, the part of him that was on display when Geraldo Rivera interviewed him in prison. And he starts saying things like, if I ever started killing people, there'd be none of you left. Yeah. Like he's some, <laughs> like he's a villain from. Well, know. by the way, you know, it's so funny you say that. So I'm friends with the guys that made the show Aquarius on mm-hmm. NBC, both the writer and director of guys I've done multiple shows with in various stages of my career. But it was just one of those situations where I couldn't believe that well, these are really close friends. I couldn't believe my friend had set up a show involving Manson himself and the Manson family, and that somehow I wasn't involved in it. Like, he couldn't have uh-huh. just thrown me a bone, maybe, you know, made me the dishwasher, anything. But no, of course not. I had to just sit there on the sidelines yeah. and watch. One of the first things I did when I realized that my buddies were going to go make this great show without me was I said to the director half, I said, let me give you my unsolicited two cents on how to direct your Charlie actor that I wish more people who did Manson depictions understood. I said, just tell the actor to do Tony Robbins. And <laughs> for exactly the same reason you just said. And this buddy of mine doesn't always listen to me, but I, it was really interesting. A few months later, he said, you know, I said exactly what you told me to say. He totally, apparently he really went to the bank with that. That actor was was actually pretty good. But I did visit the set um, one day, and it was purely random. I happened to be on the lot, and I knew that they were shooting an episode. I had no idea that that happened to be the episode when they were going to depict the Tate murders. And so they had this stage. I, I'm trying to think of what lot it was. Oh, it was, I think it was the Raleigh lot, not far from Paramount in Hollywood. And they had the lawn. They had a psych with Hollywood circa 1969, this, you know, Hollywood lights. And they had the living room completely recreated. And it was just as surreal as fuck. I mean, I couldn't believe it. The weird thing that annoyed me was they didn't even tell me that that was, I mean, I know this is starting to sound sick, like I would want to be there for the shooting of that scene. But, you know, if nothing else, I could have given my friend who was directing it a few pointers, you know, been a technical advisor for the day. And I literally just happened to be there on the day they were prepping it. I thought they were going to shoot the next day. One of the uh, art department guys was kind of squatted down in front of the door with red paint and a paintbrush about to paint the word pig onto the door. Mm -hmm. And as I was walking by him, I said, you know, it's none of my business, but she used a towel. And he kind of of looked at my friend, the director, like, should I listen to this clown or what? Mm -hmm. The, The odd thing, though, about that was for... Reasons I can't recall, I think just for the camera angles that my friend, the director, wanted, they had the dimensions of the front room reversed Mm -hmm. so that when you walked in, everything was the opposite of what it really is, if you look at the pictures. So that was a little weird. But then the other weird thing that happened, several years later, same lot, I'm having lunch with my same friend, the guy who created Aquarius. And at the end of lunch, he goes, oh, I think Tarantino's shooting uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood somewhere on the lot. I was like, what? Where? Well, right over there. I think that one. So we finish our lunch. I walk over to the sound stages, and I just walk in. And I get onto this set, and it kind of reminds me of my friend's set from Aquarius. It's got this psych behind it with these twinkly lights. It's this you know, very you know, well-to-do 
obviously, you know, kind of Hollywood home. And I'm, I'm going, the more I'm creeping around it, I'm starting to go, this must be it. I must have picked the right soundstage. And I finally get around to this area. There are all these cowboy pictures on the walls. And there's this group of crew members sitting in the middle of the, of the set having lunch. And I said, what stage is this? And they said, once upon a time in Hollywood. And I was like, oh, sorry. And I kind of ran away. But when I saw the movie, I was like looking for where I was standing. So uh, again, it, it all comes back home. It's like you're having lunch with a friend and the next thing you know, you're standing on a Charlie Manson movie soundstage that you could just kind of mosey onto, you know? Well, and, when you, know, you were at the uh, set for Aquarius, and they had the set of the Tate house there yeah. and you sent me a, an image of it yeah. and you said, do you recognize this? I remember staring at it going, it looks so familiar. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's worth noting the the number of sites that we've visited because it speaks to the level of commitment. I mean, I don't know what year I first took you to the Tate House, but it was obviously pre-94 because that's when they tore it down to, torn down by the guy that created Full House, who was recently Mm -hmm. fired for sexual harassment or something, but replaced it with this hideous Mediterranean thing with a dome. So you can't see the old house anymore, but you can certainly go to the area. It's creepy, but I, I'm trying to remember if, if going there with you was the first time I ever saw it or if I saw it. Because I did go out there once by myself when I was in college because I went to school about 80 miles east of L.A. Do you know? Do you know if that was my first time? I think that you had already been to it once before. Okay. And one time when I think it was when we were on one of the trips for your parents Uh where we were delivering Coke machines and jukeboxes and things where I think that was the first time you took me there and the gate was closed, but you were, you could tell where it was and you had taken me there a couple of other times, but I remember vividly the time that you drove us there and the house was gone. Right. It was just a vacant lot. There was nothing there and it was so unsettling at the same time. It was a relief too. It's like, well, it's gone now. You know, yeah, yeah. There was also the time where you took me to a Mexican restaurant and we were eating and halfway through the meal, you said, do you know where we are? (laughs) And I was like, no, where are we? And I think you said this was the last place Sharon Tate had dinner before she was killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's at El Coyote. That's prominently featured in the Tarantino movie as well. You and I also took what's called the Tragical History Tour. with our friend Tony, where you were brought to not just the Tate location, but several other kind of notorious sites in L.A. that are connected to the crimes, including the house on Portola up the street from the Tate house where the killers rinsed themselves off with a hose until they Mm -hmm. were interrupted by the homeowner who tried to reach into the car and grab the keys away from Tex Watson and who, for some completely bizarre reason lived to tell the story yeah (laughs) and uh so you can go see that house and they still have a spigot and it still has a hose i'm sure it's a different hose and they take you to the stretch on uh benedict canyon just south of moholland where the killers that we were discussing earlier threw their clothes over the edge and the the media found them instead of the cops and, you know, places like that, you go to El Coyote and, and you know, I think they'd take you to Jay Sebring's house, which is not far from where, where Sharon Tate lived. 
it's inarguably interesting if you don't live here because it's a faraway place where these crazy things happen. But if you do live here, it's like anything else. I mean, I, it's not just in the field of crime. I, I love the history of neighborhoods and where famous things happen, good and bad. It's just yeah. it's a fascination of mine. Well, they so. put it in a lot of perspective. I mean, for oh, somebody yeah. like me who didn't live in the area and had been reading about it for years, Sure, there's the exploitive nature of it, but at the right. same time, I really felt like it helped me understand a lot about the proximity of things. Yeah. And then we would drive to another place and you'd kind of get this idea of how they were driving around and accomplishing all this. But there was also the truly bizarre nature of that tour where when you're you're in that bus with total strangers and they're playing over and over again on like a loop. In between when the driver's narrating what you're looking at, they're playing these records of the Manson family singing these atrocious <laughs> songs. <clears throat> and it's a little bit like torture because uh, you can't get off the bus. No. You're trapped in there and you can't do anything but think about all of that. And I know that whenever we've gone on these sort of self-guided tours of things and stuff, there's a point where it's all you can take now. I, I don't, I don't want to think about this anymore. Yeah, the other thing I think it helps you comprehend is the mania of it, because I was I was kind of thinking about this earlier today, and I hadn't thought about it in a while, but if you just take, as an example, the LaBianca night, when they say that they drove to Pasadena, they looked in windows, they decided not to do anything because Charlie Manson saw pictures of kids, then they drive out to Waverly, where which is in a completely different neighborhood, far away from Pasadena, where the LaBiancas lived. Drop the killers off there. Then Manson and others continue on. They go to Venice Beach, which is about as far away as you can possibly get from the LaBiancas' house, mm-hmm. where they try to kill the actor that Linda Kasabian led them away from, pretending not to remember where he lived. I mean, they they were screaming all across the city. And for anyone who doesn't live here, going from, you know, Pasadena to Venice Beach is like uh, any normal person's evening. Like, that would be your night. You wouldn't do any more driving after that. Mm-hmm. So they, yeah. I mean, they were on Sunset Boulevard pulling over, you know, at, at stoplights, run, running at sports car. I mean, there was a sports car he ran out of, wielding a gun about to shoot the guy before the light changed. The geography of it really does help you contextualize the kind of manic nuttiness of it, fueled by all, a lot of the stuff they were taking, of course. I think one of the later writers reported that Manson and Kasabian had been questioned by police at Venice Beach, and they just sort of chatted and said they were hanging out. Mm-hmm. You know, so little things like that that just make you realize, you know, the, the recklessness of it, the near miss of it, like how perfectly everything had to go. But just, yeah, the, the tour really does give you a sense of the enormity of L.A. and just how much ground they were fucking covering, you know? Oh, yeah. The tour puts a lot of that in perspective, but it does capture what you were saying, the mania, the craziness of it. And I think that was ultimately capped off when the tour was over the driver gave each of us a little plastic bag (laughs) and inside the plastic bag was a little piece of rock that had purportedly come from sharon tate's fireplace right and i remember thinking to myself what am i going to do with this why are you giving these do people really need a, a a piece of that to feel connected to it you know and i understand that's what that whole tour is about we went to the museum before that where they had other things connected to infamous true crime stories. 
But I remember that kind of put the capper on the whole event for us. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> well, thank you. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, and that is the exploited part of it. And, uh, but you know, at the same time, the guy has a credit on the Tarantino movie because because mm-hmm. he knows when, so much, right? Because when you need to know that shit, a nutty guy with a van and and a bunch of <laughs> Fire rocks from Sharon Tate's fireplace is your only option if you really want the soup to nuts of the Manson case. He's the only source out there, you know. Well, uh, he knows his stuff. I mean, he yeah. knows what he's talking about. Obviously, he serves a need. Yeah. There's people that want to do this, want to go see this. And for us to have done it on our own would have been really impractical. So it was nice that you can go and do that and you can see these places and get a better understanding of it. But at the same time, it's like that. I think it's a, a Yiddish phrase where they say it was good, but it's good that it was. <laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing recently. I went to a landmark I hadn't been to before. There's a kind of famous picture of the family in a cave. It was the Life magazine shoot. It was that, yeah. That's where these photos yeah. are. Yeah. And they allowed a Life magazine photographer to the ranch and he went down there with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a yeah. near Spawn Ranch. And and I, I sent that picture of you. Yeah. yeah, I hiked down there with my wife and and with Tony, our other Manson friend. Again, it, it's back to what you were saying about the geography giving you perspective, and also back to how helpful amateurs can be. But for a YouTube video posted by a guy who literally showed you how to get from the curb of the highway to the cave. I never would have found it. No book, no no map, nothing. would. It's really cut off, and that's the thing that strikes you that you, you don't really understand by watching a movie or reading a book about it is how cut off it is and how that cut-off quality, I guess, could have contributed to falling into another reality. And, you know, that, that sense of being cut off from the world was certainly exacerbated, and that obviously was to a con man's advantage without question, you know, but you, you really understand that in a way by going there in a way that you don't, if you haven't been, it's really difficult to talk about the sort of end of the sixties linchpin, which people debate was, you know, was it Manson? Was it Altamont without referencing <laughs> the latest Tarantino film, which I've seen a couple of times. One of the strong themes in that film that in many ways is, kind of surprisingly sentimental and kind of earnest for Tarantino is this notion that the 60s were, in addition to being pocked with all these kind of fashionable mementos, that the dress and the drugs and the music, that it had an innocence to it that was really genuine and mm. that, that was definitely real and not imagined and not something that, you know, is sort of made up after the fact and that... Uh, sort of apocryphal way but really existed and it was destroyed it was taken away you know we've talked about it it's been written about joan didion very famously wrote about the manson family or the manson murders ending the peace and love movement you know i'm paraphrasing and there's that uh, documentary that's called charles manson the man who killed the 60s yeah not to put too fine a point on it exactly people had thought that the sharon tate murders and the la bianca murders were somehow drug related the police even at one point were saying they weren't related at all, that the two crimes were committed by different people. So when the family was identified as the killers, it wasn't just, oh my God, this was a crime spree. These were all linked and everything, but there had never been anything like this deranged family of dirty hippies in the media like that before, let alone being led by some sort of messianic figure like Charles Manson, who 
like him or not, was very charismatic at the time. And so he kind of represented the end of things. Well, this is interesting. Just looking at our own very favorite, CLOdrive.com, the first headlines that indicated that they had found the killers was December 2nd of Mm -hmm. 1969. Charles Manson, Bruce Davis, and a bunch of other people were arrested on October 12th, the day after the Zodiac killed a cab driver in San Francisco. I believe it was for vandalism, vandalizing like farming equipment or dune buggies or something. An earth mover, yeah. An earth mover, yeah. And they were in jail for that. And some of them were even released. But Susan Atkins was kept in custody and started talking to Ronnie Howard about all this stuff. And police began investigating when Ronnie Howard pinked on her. And then slowly over time, they were piecing together, oh, my God, it was what she's saying is true. They did commit this crime, and then they were linked with these other people. So it took a long time to figure out exactly what happened and who was involved. Uh And it wasn't until some of them started, like you were saying, some of them were ready to testify and confessing. Or even if they were still loyal to Manson, they were bragging about it and saying, oh, yeah, I was there or so-and-so was there with me. And that's when they finally started to piece together things. But the whole story was emerging slowly over time. And it wasn't until the end of 1969 where the news broke that it was this crazy family that was responsible for this. And of course, we all know that they dominated the news for years after that. I mean, the, the trial and everything after that. When I was a kid, you know, I don't remember anything in particular, but I have vague memories of hearing about all this going on. I think right. I was like 10 or something like at that time. And I knew about Manson. I knew he existed, but I didn't really understand anything about it. But it was shortly after that when I saw the TV miniseries. And if you've watched that miniseries, it really does capture that feeling that the arrival of Charles Manson on the scene was the end of something. And that it wasn't necessarily because there was any truth to that. It was because of the perception of Charles Manson and his family as hippies. So, you know, there's a lot of confusion about what Manson really believed in or what his followers believed in, whether or not they really believed in the race war that he wanted to create, allegedly. But this whole period of time, when you look at it on a timeline, it's stunning to think about. It's like almost something every day. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's almost like uh, things are now. I mean, it's it's like things things haven't been like this since then. Yeah, I, I agree. I think in the time between the reports of the murders and the announcement of the suspects that they had rounded up in the Manson situation, it probably was, again, outside of LA, New York, Chicago, et cetera, pretty quiet with respect to the case. Yeah. Once they had the perpetrators in custody and they were publishing photographs of guys like Charles Manson, yeah, then it was an international story for keeps for the next two years. Yeah. Um, And the trial was the trial of the century. Yeah, it was OJ sized trial uh, for its time. Join us next time for part two of Hollywood Horror. A to Z. Written and produced by Michael Butterfield. Featuring writer and producer David Icke. 
Zodiac Voice by John Knight. Clip from the Kevin Smith Show, courtesy of KevinSmithShow.info. Zodiac A to Z. Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com.